Well, thank you, Vincent and Wing, for leading us in the songs of worship. We're so grateful for how you get us to think more highly of our God, and uh, you've started that from the outset, so we're grateful for that. Uh, yeah, just the, those last words that we've sung, uh, what an amazing truth about the gospel. Could we have the entire world and give it up to the Lord as an offering? that would still be too small of an offering to give in thanks to the Lord. Wow, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Indeed, what wondrous truths that we see there. And um, I think it's even more humbling when we consider the gospel and uh, just even how inadequate we are and how we still struggle with sin and we try and... uh, be as Christ-like as we can, but we still struggle. Um, yeah, what, what great truths. Thank you, brothers, for leading us in those songs. Um, good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Uh, our, our message this morning is going to be found in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. So if you can find your way there, Philippians 2. And we're going to start off in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in earth and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach you, as we study your word, we recognize just our inadequacy before you. We recognize how often we fall short. And when we see what the gospel demands of our lives, what it calls us to do, Lord, we are humbled. We need your help. And so we pray that as we study this very familiar passage, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. May you accomplish your purposes in our lives this morning as we study this text. And may you receive all the glory and all the honor that you deserve. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, ever since we were born into this world, we've always had a keen sense of self-interest. When we were hungry, we would cry. When we were uncomfortable, we would cry. When we got tired, we would cry. And of course, when we got hurt, we would cry. And that that, that sense of self-interest did not necessarily go away when we got older either. We just found and continue to find more creative ways, different and more acceptable ways to manifest our self-interest. Now, to be fair, not all self-interest is bad self-interest. You should look to eat if you're hungry. If you're in pain, you probably should go to the doctor. You should desire to do well in your job so that you can save up money for the future, to care for yourself and for your family. These are all good things that God has designed for us to pursue. But where we run into trouble is when these desires, these good desires that we were meant to have, that we were meant to exhibit, become inordinate desires. When they become desires that we want more than we ought to desire them. And this is another form of idolatry that worships or seeks other things in place of God because we value these things in our lives as more important than God himself. Most of us do not actively and consciously go out of our way to be selfish people. We don't wake up one morning and decide that we're going to have idols in our hearts and be really self-absorbed. Well, unless it's our birthday. But in general, we don't try 
to be selfish because we know and we see how ugly selfishness is in the lives of other people. If I may be so bold, when we observe selfishness in the lives of others, we may tolerate for it for a time, but after a while, we begin to despise the one who exhibits selfishness. But why is it? Why is it that we find selfishness to be so distasteful in our lives? It's due partially, in, uh, it is due partially because God made us beings who were meant to focus on serving others, mainly to focus, to focus on serving him, right? but to focus on serving on others rather than ourselves. But I would also suggest that the reason why we get tired of the selfish person and we despise them in our lives is because their selfishness tramples upon our desires. When others are selfish, we bear the brunt of it. Our personal preferences are made subservient to the one who is selfish. And sadly, this is not limited to people who are Christian, to people who are not Christians. In fact, sometimes the people who are most guilty of being selfish are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They are the very ones who display this ugly type of selfishness toward us. Now, despite how easy it may be for us to exhibit selfishness in our lives, even though we have tasted and seen the goodness of God in our lives, there is hope. There is hope for those of us who desire to fight against selfishness. Now, you may not perceive yourself to be someone who is selfish, but what our passage will show us today, it'll demonstrate to us that every single one of us has to be more proactive in dying to self and living for Christ so we may live lives with conduct that is worthy of the gospel. And we will see this particularly this morning in two exhortations that remind us what gospel-worthy conduct demands from our lives. Two exhortations that remind believers what gospel-worthy conduct demands from our lives. And the first exhortation that reminds us of what gospel-worthy conduct demands from us is the exhortation to humility. The exhortation to humility. Now, as you well know, Paul writes the letter of Philippians to the church in Philippi while he's under house arrest in Rome. And he's writing to encourage them. And he's writing to encourage, to exhort them to unity upon hearing reports of disunity within the church. His love and thankfulness for the church in Philippi is, though, made exceedingly clear in verses 3 to 11 of chapter 1, as he attests to how often he thanks God for them and his confidence that the good work that God began in them will continue until it's complete. And even though he loves them very much and he's very thankful for them, he still prays that they will grow more and more in their knowledge of God so that they can become spiritually mature men and women the kind of people that God wants them to be. And though he's incredibly thankful for them, he's reminding them, you're not done yet. There's still more for you to learn. There's still more for you to apply to your lives. And that culminates finally with the command that he gives them in verse 27 to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that the entire church will stand unified as a witness of Christ to their opponents, so that their opponents could see the power of God to save. And it is with that command in our, in our minds to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel that we find ourselves this morning when we begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In light of the command to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, especially knowing that God's grace gift for them was not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake, just as Paul did, Paul builds his exhortation off of four realities that the Philippians could affirm, even if it was a little hard to see them. And you could almost read Paul's exhortation like this. If there is even a sliver 
of encouragement in Christ, if there is even a bit of consolation of love, if we have even seen a little amount of fellowship because of the Holy Spirit, and if there is any affection and compassion at all, make my joy complete. Essentially, what Paul is saying to the Philippians is, if you've experienced or can acknowledge the reality of any of these four things that result from placing your faith in Jesus Christ, even if at the moment your experience is small, you all or y'all need to make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, intent on one purpose. But why is it that Paul's joy's completeness is dependent upon the unity of the Philippian church? Paul looks back to his relationship with the Philippians, and they have a close one. And even though this is in the form of of a command, Paul is attempting to use his influence with the Philippians to encourage them to grow in unity as a church. He had previously said to them in verses 3 to 4 of chapter 1, how he thanks God for them in all of his remembrance of them, always offering prayer with joy in his prayers for them because of their participation in the gospel from the day he began to minister to them. And that is high praise. This would be almost as, this would be just like if Pastor Henry came up to you and he saw you and he said, oh, hello. It's good to see you. I was thinking about you all this week. And every time I thought about you, I was praising God because of what he has done in your life. Because of your participation in the gospel with me. I was thanking God joyfully for you. And because we're not used to such intense praise, we'll probably just give an awkward smile, mumble a word of thanks and be like, oh, thanks, Pastor Henry. And think internally, oh man, this is so uncomfortable. But this is not the case with the Philippians because they knew how close their relationship with with Paul was and that he wasn't trying to make them uncomfortable, but he was actually appealing to them in genuine love and saying to them, I've been thinking about you and I'm so thankful for you. And so as he commands them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, this appeal is saying, hey, you can do more. You can grow. You're not where you need to be exactly, so you can continue to grow. More godliness is needed if you're going to conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And so what does this conduct worthy of the gospel look like? Well, Paul describes it with four attributes. The first one is that they can grow by being of the same mind. You can be of the same mind. This does not mean that we are all supposed to think the same way about everything, but that we have a common understanding and genuine agreement that drives our approach to life and ministry. Here at a church this large, we're not all going to think the same way. Right? Even in our own families, we tend to struggle to be on the same page with the rest of the family because we all think differently. But what Paul is getting at here is what is our common goal? What is our core commitment that we are trying to reach together, even if we might arrive at those goals differently? Here at SFBC, we are committed to glorifying God by being a disciple-making church, a training center for the future leaders, not just of this church, but of Jesus' church as a whole. And how we get there will be different within our respective ministries. But if we are of one mind... In this goal. And that means, uh, this means that consensus and at times concessions will be needed, will need to, to take place in order to get there. Unity in mindset is important to how we will go about this mission. Now, being of the same mind leads to maintaining the same love. From a strictly human perspective, that's really difficult. But if we are all thinking along the same lines, united in a common goal, we will naturally strive to love one another, just demonstrating the same love God has shown us to others. And this means, if we're going to show the same love that God shows us, that our love needs to imitate God's love. That our love is born out of a choice to love the other party, even when they are at their most unlovable, desiring most of all for their good, not our comfort. Remember that love is not a feeling. 
As someone once said, and this is completely out of context, but as someone once said, your feelings betray you. Love is a choice. It may at times employ emotion, but it is a choice that you will imitate God by setting your love on someone else, that you will choose to put your love on them and leave it there. That's the kind of love that God has for us, and that's the kind of love that we imitate. Next, if we are of the same mind, maintaining a love that imitates God's love, we will also be united in spirit. That word united in spirit can also be thought of as one souled. This is similar to what we've already discussed, but it emphasizes humility. Christ's honoring conduct within the church requires for all of our members to strive for harmony in the church. Laying aside the deeds of the flesh as described in Galatians 5. And many of those deeds should be easy to lay aside as they are considered the, quote, big sins, unquote. However, the more acceptable of those deeds of the flesh, such as enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, are deeds of the flesh that are not to be present and sometimes are. And Paul wasn't even done listing all the possible sins we are capable of committing against one another in Galatians as he's wrapping up his list with the words, and things like these. There are more things that we could do against one another. There are more sins that we can commit against one another. And Paul is saying, these things you have to put away from yourselves as you are one souled, as you share a common soul that desires to honor God. Now, going back to Philippians, Paul's call to the Philippians to be united in spirit points back to our gospel calling and says that these interpersonal sins that we are capable of committing against one another must stop as we are united together in Christ. And even if you have legitimate gripes, legitimate gripes against others in the church, the gospel calls for you to think bigger, to conduct yourself in a way that is bigger because of your commitment to the gospel. It doesn't matter if the one who sins against you is violating scripture. You be better. You show them the better way. You show them the love of Christ. You show them the gospel. Even if they will not show it to you. That's the kind of intensity that, call, that Paul is calling, to, calling us to have when it comes to obeying the scriptures. And so this commitment to the gospel leads to a unity that makes us intent on one purpose. It's, it's laser-focused. And again, this idea is similar to what Paul has already written, and it, in fact, is a return to the idea of being uh, thinking the same thing, which led off this list, but it is brought out here with a firm commitment to keeping this cycle of unity and love going. And this tight interrelationship between the characteristics Paul says should be a part of the church is acting in a manner that is worthy of the gospel and that demonstrates the many nuances that our unity requires. Even though it might seem like a very simple exhortation, the practical application uh, is really difficult to live out. While the application of the four attributes of gospel-worthy conduct may already seem difficult to apply from a principle standpoint, Paul continues by showing the Philippians how we can strive practically to accomplish these goals. If we are to strive to live out these goals which drive gospel-worthy conduct, we must apply what is found in verses 3 to 4. The first thing is this, do nothing from selfishness. Do nothing from selfishness. Selfishness can also be thought of as having a mercenary spirit or selfish ambition. It is a sin that seeks how to gain more advantage for self, usually by building oneself up and can include the tearing down of others. The second thing that we are to do is to do nothing from empty conceit. And that literally translates to vainglory. We are to do nothing out of a desire to seek personal glory and acclaim. Instead, doing all things to glorify God rather than ourselves. 
And vainglory is particularly difficult to catch, as is selfishness, because our pride, our desire to lift ourselves up and to be thought well of others is natural. We want to be liked. When people are impressed by our demeanor, our ability to teach, our hospitality, our knowledge, our leadership, whatever it might be, it can be really easy for us to inwardly puff ourselves up, all the while having a sense of false humility and saying, oh, praise God. Be on careful, careful watch, brothers and sisters, for selfishness and a pursuit of your own glory. These are hidden reefs of spiritual danger seeking opportunities to cause you to run aground. Instead of acting selfishly or out of empty conceit, we are to act positively with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than ourselves. So in sharp contrast to selfishness and empty conceit, we are to consider ourselves with a lowliness of mind. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're supposed to be overly negative about ourselves or that we have an attitude of false modesty. Rather, we're to have a proper view of ourselves as creation that is utterly dependent upon the creator, even for the giftedness that we may believe belongs to us. Remember your place, brothers and sisters. You are always creature before the creator. You are nothing more. You're always the creature that is utterly dependent upon the creator. Now, during the time when Paul was writing to the Philippians, this idea of being lowly of mind was actually seen as negative by the community. It was associated with weakness, with servility, and even groveling. And what Paul communicates here is really, really important, especially now as we're taught to have a high estimation of ourselves. We are to take on a mindset of servant-heartedness towards one another. We are to strive to look out for the good of other people and to serve them. And if we're mutually doing this, no one will take advantage of the other. And we do this not by looking out only for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, that might seem a little odd grammatically, but Paul is not calling for believers to completely abandon taking care of ourselves. But as we're taking care of ourselves reasonably, we're also to look out for the interests of others. Now, you'll notice that Paul actually doesn't set any limits or define the limits of when looking out for our own personal interests crosses the line from acceptable to unacceptable. And that's on purpose. Because it, it really just demonstrates how deceptive sin can be in our lives. Paul cannot tell us when we have individually crossed the line from reasonable care to selfishness. That's for us to determine as we examine our hearts before God. But what we do know is that we cannot have an unreasonable preoccupation with pleasing ourselves or advancing ourselves. We must be willing to have a mindset that considers others and what they might need and how they might need to be served, even if we don't think their request is reasonable. Even if we don't think their request is reasonable, we have to be willing to not keep our thoughts focused on ourselves and advancing our agenda, grabbing our preferences rather than others. We have to be thinking about others. And as we think about what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, we have seen how Paul, he points to something we all have and struggle with in varying degrees. Selfish pride. We naturally desire to pursue what we believe we most need in this life. But what Paul reminds us here is that the gospel calls us to live counter to our natural tendency and to live lives that are focused on serving Christ, which by extension serves others. Addressing similar issues he saw in the Corinthian church, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
When we love Jesus more than we love ourselves, we demonstrate that we understand that his sacrifice was not merely to save us from our own sins. Yes, he did die for our sins. And he did exchange our sin for his righteousness. But that is not the end of the story. He saved us for a purpose. He saved us so we might be freed from our enslavement to sin and that we might serve him. Pursuing righteousness out of a joyous love for him. This is not legalism. It is a loving obedience. A joyful submission out of love. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Part of that work is making disciples as we know from Matthew 28. But another part of it is to care for one another and to bear each other's burdens. The gospel is not just about our own personal standing before God. The gospel is not about you and your salvation alone. It is about God and his glory and how we might glorify him. It has never been about you. It has always been about him. And we would do well to remember that. Therefore, consider how you might live to please Christ in your life. How can you serve him by serving the people that he has placed in your life? Brothers and sisters, resist the temptation to think that this application point is for your family member or your friend who needs to hear this right now. And understand that Paul's exhortation here is for you and it's for me, regardless of whether we get what we want or not. In fact, that's an example of our inflated view of self, is it not? I don't need this. You need this. And once you figure that out, my life will be a lot easier. Of course, we would never say that out loud, right? But we think it. Maybe not in those exact words, but we think it. And I'm emphasizing this aspect of of sacrificial service to others here a lot because we tend to put artificial limits as to how much we will serve others and when we will serve others. For example, we'll say something like this. No, I'm, t- I'm too tired. I would serve you, but I'm too tired. Or I'm, I'm too busy right now. I, I can't do it. A common one that I hear, and I'm not directing this at you if you have told me this recently, I'm just an introvert. Because I'm an introvert, you know, it's, it's not in my nature to want to love other people right now. I just want to be by myself. I just helped out last week. Why do I have to serve? I already do so much work at work and at home. Why do I have to serve? Why do I have to help out? Now, please, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying. That you all should work and serve to the detriment of other areas in your life. That you should neglect your responsibilities. I'm not saying that if you need to take care of yourself and take care of your health, that you should throw your health out the window just to serve the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying that you are holier and have a better standing before God if you practice these things. And I'm not saying that some of these things are not at times valid reasons for why we might need to take a break. However, there are times when we have to consider whether it is more appropriate for us to serve sacrificially than it is to take care of ourselves. Even when you may not feel like it because at times there are needs that need to be met. Even if we don't think that it is valid or pressing at this time. Of course, there is a balance here. We shouldn't all expect everyone else to drop everything to serve us because we're called by the gospel to serve one another. Some things are really not that urgent. And not everything has direct kingdom impact. But the general principle that Paul is driving home here is that the gospel calls us to reorient our lives away from ourselves and towards others. Ultimately, because the gospel calls us to unity as a church, which is only possible if we humble ourselves and love each other. But the ex- this exhortation to humility is not the only reminder that Paul gives for living lives that are uh, lived with conduct worthy of the gospel. There is a second exhortation that he gives, and it is the exhortation to imitate Christ. The exhortation to imitate Christ. 
Verse 5 says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This verse is a transition verse between verses 1 and 4 and verses 6 and 11. But essentially what we have here is the the core verse, the center verse of Philippians 1.27 all the way to Philippians 2.18. Now the popular takeaway from uh, from this section of text is Jesus humbled himself when he became a man and died for our sins. Therefore, we need to be like Jesus and humble ourselves. That's the common application point that you've heard when this passage has been preached to you. And I do not disagree with that entirely, but I would argue that there is much more to this passage than Jesus humbled himself, therefore I need to do so too. The progression of Paul's argument works like this. If you are going to live a life that is consistent with this new life that you have in Christ, you all cannot be about yourselves. You were not made to please yourself, ultimately, which is why you must be united, loving, and humble as you demonstrate to the world the power of the gospel in the way that you interact with one another. And though the key to demonstrating the power of the gospel can be seen in practical ways, Paul's not just saying, do these things because I told you so. But he's, he's saying your ultimate motivation for applying these principles it's not just because I commanded you to do it, but because Jesus' life is an example of what a life looks like when it is intent on showing the power of God to save. And as a result, Christians are called to take on or hold the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Notice that when Paul talks about Jesus, he identifies him as Christ Jesus. Most of you probably don't even think anything about that because you just think it's interchangeable. Right? But Paul intentionally does this to communicate a theological reality. Jesus is no mere man. That name Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah or anointed one. And so when he draws attention to Christ's title by saying Christ Jesus, he's drawing attention to Jesus' position And the reason why he draws attention to Jesus' position is because it has a stark contrast from what we see in verses 6 to 8. Jesus is presented to Paul's audience as the Messiah, as the king who will redeem Israel, deliver them from their enemies, and establish the kingdom. Yet what what we see is that in the way he does it, it's entirely unexpected. Verses 6 to 8 who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, these verses that I just read to you can be covered in a theology class for probably about a few weeks. Um, I'm not intending to smash all of that into uh, this, these next few minutes, but what I want to do is just highlight some of, these, uh, the, some of the significance that's here um, in, in the case that Paul's making. Paul wants the Philippians to consider Jesus' example by noticing Jesus' humility despite his status. Jesus existed in the form of God in eternity past. He was always God. Before time began, Jesus existed, and he existed as God. He shared the same nature as God because he was God. Now think about that carefully. Jesus was and always has existed as God. John 1.1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on you see the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Think about this carefully. Even though Jesus was God and he shared the exact same nature as God, there is still distinction even though that they are equal. There is still distinction despite their equality. And there is loving submission present in their relationship. And I know that can be a little difficult for us to wrap our minds around because there's no natural comparison to this. I mean, there's no natural comparison to having three things existing at the same time in three different forms, but yet being the same thing, right? All at the same time. Don't say water because it's not true. He's God, very God. 
You cannot say that he is any way less than God the Father. Yet Jesus does not regard equality with God, uh, with God a thing to be grasped. Think about that for a moment. He's still God, and yet he considers himself on a slightly lower plane than God. He understands that from a role's perspective, he is subservient to God the Father. Therefore, he doesn't even strive or want to consider himself equal to God the Father. You and I, on our most humble days, might be okay with that. But in a very real sense, if someone were to tell us to lay down our rights and to lay down our titles and to be treated like someone lower than our station, we would be outraged. We have a position. We have a title that we've earned. We have our rights and the, respects that, and the respect that comes with those rights. And we will have what we've earned. If I'm this, essentially the same as you, why would I consider myself any less? And that's the way that we tend to think. That is the way that our culture encourages us to think. But this is not Jesus' mindset. He doesn't pursue his rights. He doesn't pursue equality, though we would say he has every single right to do so. Instead, verse 7, he emptied himself. He laid down some of his divine rights and glory to take on the form of a bondservant as he was born a man. Jesus has the very same nature of God as, as God. He has the form of God. And now he adds on to that the form of a man. He also takes on the form of a man as God sends him to earth to be born a man. And Jesus' humility and submission does not stop there. It goes even further as we are told that he was also obedient to the Father to the point of death. Now you remember in Colossians 1, 16-17 that it is through Jesus Christ that everything is created. And he holds everything and sustains everything in his person. Jesus is the epitome of life. And yet, in his incarnation, when he became a man, the purpose was always for him to die. The purpose was always for him to die as a sacrifice for all who will believe. Jesus, the member of the Trinity, who was responsible for bringing life, submitted himself to God the Father to the point of death. That is such a huge contrast. And if that's not significant enough, if that's not humiliating enough, even for Jesus to have to become a part of creation, to become a man and to live his life only for the purpose of dying for, for our sake, he also had to die the most humiliating death possible, death on a cross. Death on the cross, as many of you know, was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was reserved for the vilest of criminals. And it robbed you of all dignity. They stripped you bare. And they nailed you to the tree that you were going to be executed on. And you had to carry it. Right? You didn't, you didn't necess- they didn't just have it there and then they just nailed you on and, and, and then you died. No, you had to carry it too. Right? It's like, cut your own switch and then I'll discipline you with that switch. Except for carry your own cross and then I'm going to discipline you on that cr- and I'm going to kill you on that cross. That's what he experienced. He did it before a jeering public that mocked him. This was the death that the only truly innocent and good person in all of human history experienced. And he humbled himself to that experience. So that all who could, so, so that all who believe in him would have their curse removed because cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. He experienced curse so that you would not have to. He took your curse so that you could receive his righteousness when you believe in him. And this is the most lopsided trade that the history has ever seen. Jesus humbled himself, obeying the Father to the point of death, dying the death of a criminal when he had not even committed one sin. He didn't even, he didn't even defy his parents once. No snarky remarks, no sarcastic comments, not even that. All so that he could be an innocent sacrifice that could forever remove guilt from all who repent from their sins and believe in him. Actually, I take that back, not forever, because there is a limit to that. Um, But so that he could remove the guilt. 
Right? And this is the highest form of humility, the highest form of sacrifice that we will ever see. And this is the exact type of humility, the exact kind of humility that Paul calls for all Christians to imitate in their lives because Christ, our example, did so in submission to the Father, even though he shared the same nature as the Father. Why? Why did he do that? It's because he loved God the Father, and he wanted to please God the Father above all else. He didn't care about his rights. He didn't care about his station. He cared about God the Father. That was his motivation. It wasn't because he knew that he would receive a reward. It's because he loved God the Father, and that's why he obeyed. And verse 9 tells us that God the Father acknowledges this. It is because of Jesus' loving submission to God, even to the point of death on a cross, that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Notice that God the Father is the one doing the exalting. Jesus did not humble himself for a selfish for a selfish gain. He did so in true submission to God. And because the legitimacy of his humility and his submission to God, God highly exalts Jesus. Now because Jesus is God, God the Father's action of highly exalting him does not mean that Jesus is elevated any more than he already is, because he already is God. But what this high exaltation entails is God the Father restoring Jesus' glory from before the incarnation, giving it back to Jesus, right? but also giving Jesus more honor and more rights as Jesus is now made king over all too. Now he reigns as king. And this name that God gives Jesus that is above every other name is not the name Jesus. It's the name Lord. And not capital L, lowercase O-R-D, but capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I am Yahweh. That is the name that God gives to Jesus. He gives him his own name. And the reason why he does that is so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And Paul doesn't make this up out of nowhere. But it, he is referencing Isaiah 45, 23 to 25, where God says, I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. This is God the Father. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, switching to third person, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. God himself is speaking here. He talks to, about himself in the first person, and then eventually he switches to the third person, referencing someone else. So you can see, even in Isaiah, he was, all, he was already thinking about someone else who was also God, who would also be named, who would be named and identified with his name. And those who reject him will be judged. And yet, this, this one, who also bears the name of the Lord, will justify the nation. God himself is speaking in Isaiah 45, and what he's saying here, when he gives Jesus the name above every name, which is his own name, is that Jesus gets the kingdom. And that what God has promised in the past is happening now. And it's happening through Jesus. God exalts Jesus so that everyone will submit to Jesus as king because God was determined to give his son the kingdom. When it says that every knee will bow, Paul really means every knee will bow because he includes all who are in heaven, who are on earth, and under the earth. So there's no one in between. Every single knee will acknowledge Christ. Every person will acknowledge Christ as Lord. Whether it is joyful and willing or subdued acknowledgement, no matter what the case, 
even if you are hard-hearted now and you shake your fist at God or you don't even believe in him, no matter what the case, Jesus will eventually be acknowledged as Lord. And not only will that be seen in the way that we bow to him and to show honor in that way, but every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't matter what language you speak. All people will verbally acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. His lordship is not a theoretical one, but it is an actual one that involves the submission of the entire person. It's not just your tongue, it's your knees too. You bow and you acknowledge. Every single person will do so. You will acknowledge him as Lord, whether you want to or not. And all of that is according to God's plan, which is why God says that this is done to the glory of himself. And when God fulfills everything that he has planned for the salvation of mankind through Jesus, he receives glory as Christ is glorified because he has proven himself faithful and all-powerful. Everything that he has promised has been brought to pass even though the devil was actively trying to oppose him. Jesus' example of humility is the ultimate example for us to follow, not just because he's God and humbled himself to be a man so that he could save us, but also because he submissively and lovingly humbled himself before God the Father to glorify God the Father. And that is why Philippians 2 is not just a call for you to imitate Jesus in being humble because he became a man. The end goal of his humbling was always to glorify God. And that brings us that, that helps us understand that when we are humble, we do so for the glory of God. When we conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, we are called to conduct ourselves in a way that always seeks to glorify God first and foremost. Actually, in everything, not just on the top, but in everything. It transcends everything. This results in the demonstration of God's saving and unifying power in the lives of God's people. When we as a church get together and we show the world that we are committed to glorifying God, to think differently through having similar commitments, a love for one another, unity, and a desire to serve one another, we show people that the gospel does not just save us so that we can continue to live for ourselves. That it does not save us so that we can continue to pursue what we would have always pursued without the gospel. The gospel changes us so that we can die to self and live to accomplish the will and purposes of him who saved us. And that is why it is so tragic. When churches split and die due to infighting. Almost every single church split that you hear about is a result of prideful believers refusing to get along, taking small issues such as having pews versus chairs, the color of the paint on the walls, or other trivial matters, making things, making them issues to separate over. Sometimes it is right for churches to separate when it's about doctrine, but when it's about trivial things like the color of the wall, whether we have chairs or pews, What a dishonor to our Lord. The gospel does not call for you to be aggressive or passive-aggressive toward your fellow believers to accomplish what you want. It does not call for you to be a petulant child. It calls for us to love one another and seek each other's good. And if we do sin against each other, and we will, we can lay aside our rights our privileges, our expectations, our pride to reconcile and prove, even in private matters, the power of the gospel to bring people together and unite them in Christ. We might not feel like we can, but the gospel calls for us to die to self and to live for God and his glory And that call says that we can and we must live in this way, even if it's hard, even if it requires great patience. And that leads us to some really pointed application. There are many of us 
here in this room who are either in a relationship, a romantic relationship, or desire a romantic relationship. And if you're in, a, in this type of relationship, or even if you have good, close friendships, if your relationships are centered around you feeling that you are loved and that you are cared for, and that you can continue to live your life the way that you want to live it, just with a person who loves you so that you're not lonely, and you have some growing to do, you have some thinking to do about whether you are actually thinking about loving someone else and serving them, or whether you enjoy feeling loved. And it just so happens that the person who you want to love you is the one who is with you. Relationships are not meant by God to give you a sense of fulfillment or a sense of worth. And I feel like that is the danger that, we, that many of us have when we think about relationships. I'm not happy My quality of life is not good. It's a struggle. The joy is gone. The love is gone. You were never, ever meant to find fulfillment in a relationship in a satisfactory way because God designed you to find fulfillment in your relationship with Christ. It's not about you. It's never been about you. So when we talk about our relationships, whether it's with our families, whether it's with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, with your kids, it's not about you. It's about service and how you can serve one another, love one another, spur each other on towards Christ-likeness. And if it's about you and how you feel and the fulfillment of yourself in that, You have some adjustments to, to make because that's not what God designed in relationship. What God has designed for us to do in a relationship is to love one another, to serve one another, to spur each other on towards Christ's likeness as they do the exact same thing to you. It's a mutual love and submission towards one another as you strive to grow in Christ. That's what God calls you to do. And if you only seek to find your own self-fulfillment in a relationship, it wouldn't be surprising if once all the feelings are gone that you decide to move on. For those of you who struggle to selflessly love others, how can you begin to work around some of these excuses that we often give ourselves for not making time for others. Some of us may not necessarily have the personality that naturally pursues others and serves to seek them. It's okay. The gospel doesn't call for you to take on a personality that you don't have. But it does not necessarily mean that you have an excuse not to love the people in the body. I know this is a big church. I know that at times it's easy for people to fall through the cracks. But if we notice that there are people who are hurting or people off on the side on their own and we choose not to love them because it's not in our personality or your giftedness to go love them, that's not a valid excuse for not loving them. That's not a valid excuse for caring for them. Saying that You're not built that way is just rebellion against what God calls for us to do as he calls for us to love one another and to seek to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. Saying that you're not gifted in discipleship or in relationship building never, ever gives you an excuse to disobey, and I use that word intentionally, disobey God's will for you to make disciples and to bear one another's burdens. And if you think that's legalistic, you check the scriptures. We all have no excuse. And it is a struggle at times. I admit that. Even for me. There are times when I'm tired and I don't want to engage. I know I have to, there are times when I'm tired and I don't want to. And that, that, brothers and sisters, is when I need to get over myself 
to humble myself before holy God and do what I don't want to do. And I encourage you to try and do the same. And we have no excuse before holy God to disobey what he has clearly stated in his word. We have to do the hard work of understanding one another. Even if it takes longer than we think. Even if we have to extend grace when we don't feel like it. Even if we don't think that we have time for it in our schedules. Because ultimately it's about glorifying God. And that's what matters. Not your schedule. Will you be willing to glorify God and to please him in all respects, even when it comes at personal cost to yourself, even when you don't feel like doing it? If you understand that, then and only then will you be living a life that is conducted in a manner worthy of the gospel so that everyone can see those in the church and those outside the church, the life-altering power of the gospel to bring people together despite sin, to unify them in Christ so that they are devoted to the cause of Christ. They are devoted to see God glorified. They are devoted to see Jesus Christ crowned as King and Lord no matter what the personal cost. Due to the sin nature that each and every one of us has inherited, the fight against selfishness will be ongoing. We will all have our preferences. We will all have desires that will inevitably clash with others. And there will certainly be times where exceptions will exist. And it will be okay for us to stand our ground. But what we have seen today is that salvation in Jesus Christ requires for us to live to a much higher standard. To think differently. To think even more broadly than we will, that, that we are prone to do. And that requires hard work and practice. We love ourselves. Even if you think you have low self-esteem, why do you think you have low self-esteem? It's because other people don't love you as much as you think you ought to be loved. That might sound harsh, but think about it. Why do you feel low self-esteem? Because you think you're worth something. And other people tell you you're not. Or you feel that way anyway. We love ourselves. And even if we hate ourselves, we only hate ourselves because we have an idealized version of ourselves that we want to get to and we're not there. We are wholeheartedly committed to ourselves, which is why it is so easy for us to be selfish. Brothers and sisters, the gospel calls us to so much more. And we saw that this morning in the exhortation to humility and the exhortation to imitate Christ. Now, living a life that is worthy of the gospel is a life that does not love ourselves, but is a life that is driven by a love and a desire to glorify God, which results in a desire to love ourselves less and to desire God's glory more, even if it's hard and even if we may not feel like it sometimes. A commitment to be like Christ is not just a commitment to grow in righteousness or just to grow in knowing facts about Jesus. It is a resolute commitment to honor God and to glorify him and see him worshiped by all who believe through obedience born out of a love for God. Let us work hard toward that end through the grace given to us by God and through the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by this exhortation, these exhortations that are given to us by the Apostle Paul to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And a life that is worthy of the gospel is not a life that merely just obeys commands, but it is a life that desires above all else to glorify you. And Father, as we fight our own tendency towards selfishness, we pray that you would help us do so, not just so that, uh, not just because 
Jesus humbled himself and we have to too, but because we want to glorify you. May that be our driving motivation. May that be the thing that causes us to do the hard work of relationship building and self-sacrifice so that all who observe us can see the power of the gospel working in us so that we might not live for ourselves but for him who died for us. Thank you, Father, for your word. We pray that your word would accomplish its goal in our lives. It's your sons that we pray. Amen.